Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Yes, uh, my name is Jeff Patton. I'm one of the two teaching pastors here. In case you're new with us, and I am honored to be with you. And uh, as we talk about the greatest story ever told. Matter of fact, uh, the famous writer uh, who I hated studying in school, by the way, but William Shakespeare, Shakespeare said, storytelling is the most powerful way to put ideas into the world. And so this week and the next week, we're going to take these two Sundays to talk about the greatest story ever told about the most unique and influential person in the history of the world, and that person is Jesus Christ. And, and now you may say, Jeff, that's your perspective as a Christian. 
Well, actually, it's most of the world's perspective as well. If you go to old Mr. Google and Google who's the most influential and impactful man in the history of the world, over and over again, Jesus Christ is at the top of that list. Now, I want you to think about this. The data tells us that 117 billion people have been born since time began. And out of those 117 billion, Jesus Christ is at the top. His life is unique, and it is worth for us taking a look at. Matter of fact, if you removed Jesus Christ from history, history would look completely different. One historian put it this way. He said, 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he is still the centerpiece of the human race. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, and all the parliaments that ever set, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has one solitary life of Jesus Christ. Now, speaking of stories, let me tell you one. Once upon a time, there was a man named Jeff. That would be me. 25 years ago, that man named Jeff was on a training run, trying to train to run a marathon. And he thought he looked wonderful. And as he passed an elderly couple at their mailbox, the elder man said to his wife, Big boy ain't going to make it, honey. <laughs> now, as I jogged past, I thought about going to tackle him in his front yard and say, what would you say, boy? <laughs> but as I jogged past, I thought that is a unique way to tell me that I looked absolutely horrible running. But it's also our belief here at Fellowship Bible Church that we believe we as humans will not make it as God intended us to make it, as God intended us humans to flourish unless we fully consider and think about the life of Jesus Christ and all that he's done in his life and death and what we believe his resurrection. We believe he was not only the greatest person to ever live, but that he is actually alive today and is fully able to indwell a person through his spirit and totally remake and renew and change the way that person thinks about God, the way he thinks about others, and the way he thinks about himself. So, whoever you are this morning, from the very most committed, long-term follower of Jesus Christ to a person that somehow you got drugged here by your family, you don't even know where you are, <laughs> We would ask that you would engage and listen and consider as we look at the most unique life in the history of the world. So what is it, we ask the question, that makes the life of Christ so unique? And you have some notes there. We can go along. There's some verses there in case you want to look up verses later. But the first is his birth. The birth of Christ is the only birth of a baby that in the history of the world that did not result from a sexual intimacy, from the result of a man being with a woman intimately. His mother Mary, we are told, was a virgin. And the Bible calls the birth of Christ the incarnation or God becoming flesh. And here's how John 1.4 puts it. He says, God became flesh 
and lived with us, and we saw the splendor of the unique one from the Father. Now, I think personally one of the most powerful things about the birth of Christ is that 700 years before he was born, a guy by the name of Isaiah, a prophet, wrote down these words. You will receive a sign, behold the virgin will conceive and will bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. So he prophesied or predicted that and it came true. And there's another guy, another prophet named Micah that hundreds of years before the birth of Christ actually told us that Jesus Christ would be born in Bethlehem in that very town. Now, I don't know about you, but I, the weathermen here in Middle Tennessee can't predict the next 24 hour weather let alone hundreds, and y'all nodding your head, ain't no doubt, right? Hundreds of years before predicting uh, that a virgin would have a child in the town that he would be born in. Now, I want you to imagine with me that you're engaged as a man, and your fiance, your future wife, comes to you and says, uh, you might want to sit down. We need to have a little chit-chat. So you sit down, grab a cup of coffee, and say, yes, darling, because you're, you're in that forever love stage, that honeymoon stage. How can, I, how can I be a service to you, sweetheart? And she looks at you, and she says, I'm pregnant, but I haven't been with anyone. How do you think that conversation is going to go? <laughs> no problem, sweetheart. What I love about the scriptures is that they're so real. Matthew, who was one of Jesus' most committed followers, actually tells us how Joseph responded to Mary when she came with him with that news. Here's what he says. Before they enjoyed their wedding night, Joseph discovered that she was pregnant. It was by the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know that. No, he didn't. <laughs> And the scripture says Joseph was stressed. I mean, that's putting it mildly, right? I think that Greek word stress means he's about to blow his brains out, right? But noble. Determined to take care of things quietly so Mary would not be disgraced. Hmm. That's so unlike what I would do. <laughs> While he was trying to figure a way out, he had a dream. God's angel spoke in the dream. Joseph, son of David, don't hesitate to get married. Mary's pregnancy is spirit-conceived. God's Holy Spirit has made her pregnant. Then Joseph woke up, and he did exactly what God's angel commanded in the dream. He married Mary, but he did not consummate the marriage until she had the baby. He named the baby Jesus. I don't know about you, but in all my categories... That's a pretty unique birth, would you say? Not only his birth, though, but his boyhood. And you can read more about that in Luke 2. Uh, you may or may not know that the Jews actually have a ceremony. When a boy is about 12 or 13, typically back in that day, they would take the son to the temple. They would have a special ceremony of him becoming a man. They would read some Old Testament scriptures. And after the ceremony, he now was a man in the Jewish eyes. He now was held responsible himself to obey the laws of God. And so the scriptures tell us 
that Mary and Joseph, along with a large group of people, traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They had this ceremony, and then when they left, the whole group of people left, and they realized, Joseph and Mary did, that Jesus wasn't with them. And here's how the conversation probably went. Mary said, Joseph, have you seen Jesus? Because I thought he was with you. You know he's a man now, and men travel with men. Joseph's response, seriously? <laughs> yeah, it's going to get bad. I thought he was with you. He's not my child. He's your child. Let that one sink in. I don't know about you, but I would love to be a little fly on the wall because that little tussle between a married couple didn't last two minutes. It lasted like 30 minutes. Finally, they come to this place because what they had done, they had walked, a typical day's travel in that time was 15 miles. They had walked from Jerusalem 15 miles. Imagine coming together with this large group of friends and families and family members and realize your 12-year-old son isn't with you. Where in the world is he? So what do they do? They walk all the way back to Jerusalem, another 15 miles. Now Jerusalem was a little different than normal. Typically, there's 25,000 people that live there. It has swelled to nearly 2 million because of the Passover. And, this, and the scriptures tell us they spent three days looking for him. Three days. They finally found him in this last place that they had seen him, which was in the temple. The scriptures tell us he was discussing the things of God from the Old Testament with the best of the best, the Harvard and Yale educated religious teachers of the day. And it says those teachers were amazed at Jesus' knowledge of 12 and his understanding of the Old Testament. His parents were not impressed. Because they're thinking, I don't know if you, you ever said this to your kid, what in the world were you thinking? How many said that? Yeah, the rest of you are not telling the truth, right? <laughs> You've said it in some form of fashion. I sure have. Have you lost your mind, Jesus? Because you and your, me and your father are absolutely losing our mind looking for you. Here's Jesus' response at 12. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be right here in the temple doing the business of my father? You see, after that Jewish ceremony for a 12, 13-year-old Jewish boy to become a man, the next step was to go home and join the father in his business. Mary was shocked because she had never told Jesus about his unique birth, nor had Joseph. But Jesus knew at age 12 who he was and whose business he was to be about. What I think is also unique is for the next 18 years, Jesus goes home. He joins his father Joseph in the carpenter business. And then at age 30 begins his ministry. So we have a unique birth. We have a unique boyhood, and now we have unique actions, or I would put it this way, the things that he did. One of his followers, John, wrote these words. Jesus did so many other things that if they were all written down, the world could not contain the books that would be written. 
So in light of this, we're going to go about the next seven hours just to skim the surface, okay? So talk about what Jesus did. Obviously, it would take way more time than we have. But big picture, in the days that when Jesus lived, he was known primarily by the public as a miracle worker of good deeds or good works. Matter of fact, Flavius Josephus, the famous Roman Jewish historian who spoke about Jesus as a miracle worker. And there's a quote in your notes, but part of the quote is this. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds. So even a non-Christian Jewish historian wrote he that Jesus was known for these, these, to be a miracle worker of good deeds for good purposes. We know that he healed diseases. He turned water into not wine, but the best wine when it ran out at a wedding. He multiplied food to feed thousands. And, and that's, if you said, Jeff, what's the most, what's the miracle that you'd like to be with Jesus and him to perform for you on a regular basis, it would be that one. Jesus, I just got one sandwich from Jersey Mike's. Can you, boom, here's five. He calmed the storm. And the writers tell us when he did, he spoke to the storm like you and I would speak to our barking dog. How many of you got dogs that bark and it drives you crazy? I got one that's 9,000 years old, about that big, and he's blind and deaf and he's always been dumb. <laughs> and I love him because my wife and daughter love him, but there's, without them, he's gone. I want you to know that. <laughs> and I say things to him when he's barking that I'm not proud of, okay? <laughs> Here's how Jesus spoke to the storm. He basically said, get muzzled. Hush, hush. And the storm calmed. The haymaker, I think, of the things that he did or his actions was raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days. As Jesus approached the hole in the rock where Lazarus was buried, the scriptures tell us that he wept. Why would he weep when he knows he's about to raise him from the dead? Man, that's a heart that's just different than mine. As Jesus approaches that rock, Lazarus' sister probably frantically reminds Jesus, Jesus has been dead four days. He's going to stink. It literally says that, that this guy is not smelling good. They removed the stone, and Jesus said three simple words, Lazarus, come out. In verse 43 of that passage of John 11, Lazarus comes out wrapped, check this out, head to toe, like mummified, and it says with a kerchief hanging over his face. Jesus says to those around, unwrap the man and let him loose. We're told that this was the turning point for many of the Jews. 
And from this day forward, they believed in him as God in the flesh or the Messiah. Now, I don't know about you, but if I see a man who died and was buried for four days and wrapped like a cocoon, and Jesus says, come out, and he comes out and they unwrap him and he looks like a fresh milk nanny goat, I'm all in right here at that point. So we got Jesus, his birth, his boyhood, his actions, and next is his character or who he was as a person. Now, there's a modern English proverb that maybe some of you have heard. I love it because I identify with it. It says, no one is perfect, and that is why pencils have erasers. Amen? Yes. It's a cute saying. It's a mostly truthful saying, but I think Jesus, based on what we know about him, would take exception to that because Jesus is telling us and others have told us that he lived a perfect, sinless life. Not only did his friends say he was perfect, that's one thing, but even his worst enemy said it. In John chapter 8, Jesus actually turns to his enemies as they are interrogating him. It's the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he says to them these words, Can any of you convict me of a single misleading word? A single sinful act. How many of you would like to ask that question to your best friends? No, 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 no. I'm not asking that question to anybody. I'm not even asking that question to my wife who loves me more than a hog love slop, right? Because she's going to say something rightly so. His enemies were silent. The men who were with him 24-7 for three years, when you're around somebody that long, you see stuff. They were silent. They had nothing on Jesus. And even as Jesus hung on the cross, we know that a captain in the Roman army declared, that man is innocent. Here's what else we know just very practically. And that is when famous people die, what happens? Dirt gets dug up. Skeletons get exposed. I, I didn't have time to give examples today, but a, a, I promise you a quick search of famous people who dirt was dug up on them, worded ever how you want, you'd be amazed at what came out. This never has happened to Jesus, and it never will. There's never been another life in the history of the world where people have tried to dig up dirt on someone and examine everything about his life under a microscope, both from scholars and normal folks, and they have come up with nothing. You may disagree with him. You may not like him. You may hate him, but there's no dirt on it. He lived a perfect, sinless life. So you have his birth, you have his boyhood, you have his actions, <clears throat> and you have his character, and now you have his words, his words. I think looking at these other things that we looked at, the, the birth, the boyhood, the actions, and his character, a reasonable question would be this. 
In light of those truths, why in the world would they kill him? Not only kill him, why would they crucify him? The, the most horrific and horrible and painful death in, the, in terms of execution in the history of the world. No one even argues that. Why would they do that? I want to suggest to you this morning it is because of his words. Because of what he said. No doubt, in terms of what he said, he raised the bar on morality. Many non-Christians have admitted that Jesus Christ was by far the greatest moral teacher ever. Matter of fact, Gandhi said this about him. The great Hindu religious leader said Jesus was the greatest moral teacher of all time. And in Jesus' most famous sermon, which is in, you can find in Matthew 5, called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually raised the bar with morality. He says something like this, you say, you say, or it is said that thou shall not murder. I say, if you're angry with your brother or sister, you have committed murder in your heart. Yikes. And he said things like, love those who hate you and pray for those who seek you harm. Jesus was and is attempting, if you would, to pull the culture uphill in terms of what is good and right and true. But hear me this morning. They did not put Jesus to death because of what he told others to do and what he told, how he told others to live. They put him to death because of what he said about himself, because he said he was God. In John 8, 58 through 59, Jesus is being interrogated by the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus says, believe me, said Jesus, I am who I am. Long before Abraham was anything. And it says that did it. It pushed them over the edge, and they picked up rocks to kill him, but he slipped away from them. Now, just a parenthesis, they're trying to kill him, and Jesus is like, poof, gone. He did that many times that they tried to kill him. He would disappear. You know why he could do that? He was God, and he was in control of his own death, and he wouldn't die until he was ready to die, and the Father was ready for him to die. So here, once again, he goes, poof, and they can't find him. I love that. I'm a poof kind of guy. <laughs> Here's what Jesus says. When Jesus said, I am there, it was not because he was bad at grammar. He was claiming the very personal name that God gave himself when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, and literally Jesus' statement would read, truly, truly, or amen, am, amen, amen, I am. It is a double amen, which was the strongest oath. He's saying, like you said as a child to your mom and dad when they, 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 declare that you did something wrong, they're accusing you, and you say, Mama and Daddy, I swear, I swear. Double oath to declare that he was indeed God in the flesh. In John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father of one are the same. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is making them have strokes. John 14, 6, he says, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice he says, not a way, a truth, a life, but the. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when I've said that to people, some of their responses come back to me on numerous occasions. Well, that's not really what it meant. That's not in context. That's, that's misinterpreted. He didn't really mean that. And what they're saying is there's many ways to God. And Jesus is declaring that that is not true. And so what I typically do is open the Bible and look at the verses before John 14, 6, verses 1 through 5, because in that context is this. Jesus is telling his disciples he must leave and he must prepare a place for them after his death and resurrection. But old Thomas says, Jesus, where are you going? And how will we, your men, know where to find you? And Jesus' answer to them is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what he's saying to them is, you follow me, you will be with me forever. C.S. Lewis, just a quick survey this morning. How many of you have seen, heard of C.S. Lewis in some form or fashion? Many or most of you may be familiar with his uh, worldwide famous books called the Chronicles of Narnia. My wife read them to our children, but he called himself also the most reluctant convert of all time after he finally placed his trust in the death of Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. And after a long intellectual and emotional battle, wrestling match, if you would, with God about the facts concerning the person of Jesus Christ, he wrote this in his very famous book called Mere Christianity, and the quote is on your notes. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great, I'm ready to I, oh, like, I'm sorry. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis writes. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else, look, they would throw him off Twitter today. Can I just say that? calling people post eggs, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Part one of the greatest story ever told is about the birth, the boyhood, the actions, the character, and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who we believe at Fellowship Bible was God in the flesh. And this morning, I want to give you, if you're new with us, typically what we do here 
is called a so what. We'll give you just a little bit to think about something. And I'm going to give you a two-part so what this morning. And the first part is simply, I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to, to jot down something or put something in your mind to consider from this morning's message. And then I'll give you the second part in just a few seconds. posture of listening and engaging with your mind and heart, I want to give you the second part. And that is, I want to say to you firmly and as declarative as I can, that we as a church believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave. And all who put their trust in him alone, his death and shed blood that paid the penalty for our sins come to know him by the indwelling of his spirit. And he begins to conform us to the image of himself. But I want to say too, to all of us here this morning, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, who in the world wants to stake this life and the life to come on an old wives' tale? or hearsay, or just some emotional experience. The question is, is there actual historical and reasonable evidence for the resurrection of Christ? To answer that question, come back next week. My good friend and teaching partner, Monty Waldron, is going to teach that or discuss that. The reality is, is what Tim Keller says this. And again, this quote is at the bottom of your notes. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Take a minute to ponder that, and let me personally invite you to join us again next Sunday, if you're new with us especially. heaven, I thank you for an opportunity for us to, to sit together today and to think about the extraordinary, unique life of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for uh, dying in our place, for doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. The resurrection is a great encouragement to us. It gives us great hope that our life will not just be different today or tomorrow or next year, 
but forever. So Lord, help us walk in the newness of life that you have given us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.